Good morning, LCF. I told first service we're a little bummed this morning because we missed the tattoo convention yesterday. And, you know, Connie really wanted to go. I told her, I said, girlfriend, if you get one, it better say Bruce. And she said something. I don't remember what it was. Anyway. We've had a great series on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Tim has done a great job bringing us with a good review of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, back through the Beatitudes, up through Good Fruit, the Two Trees. Back in February, T.A. did a a great teaching on anger that uh, has been foundational for what we're going to talk about today and also Bob's last month, if you remember it, in April on being judgmental. All of those are going to factor into what you'll hear this morning. Today we're going to focus on something that can stop you from fully living out the Sermon on the Mount. The title of our teaching is Liar Loops. Liar Loops. What are liar loops? Well, before we answer that, let's take a look at our scripture lesson for today. It comes from 2 Thessalonians 3.3. And it says, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And that's where we're going with this protection from the evil one today. And that scene, by the way, is a cave in northern Israel up by Mount Hermon that was once thought to be the gate to hell. The god Baal came up through that cave and then went down seasonally back to wherever he went down to. But uh, Israel's water supply comes from springs up there at the base of uh, Mount Hermon. Sometime back in our early years at LCF, we went to a conference called Inner Healing. Inner Healing. It was down in Blue Springs, and the teacher at that conference was from Colorado. He was a pastor. And by all accounts, he had what I would call the gift of discernment. Now, I asked everybody first service what discernment was, and not a hand went up, so I'm not going to say that to this time. But discernment is what is, some people are gifted with a knowing of what's going on in other people spiritually. That's one thing. And um, that can cause them to fail, partially or even fully, as believers. And this was a ministry to the, to the church. I mean, this was directed at people who believed in Jesus, you know, who had repented of, the, of their sins, who had accepted salvation through the cross. And yet, there was this stuff back there, bad stuff, stuff that stopped you from being who you were built to be in the name. Now, there was this lady in our group that day, I think it was a Saturday, who had experienced a lot of sorrows. It's typical. Many things were done to her. She subsequently then made decisions that she regretted. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I realized at some point that that pastor was speaking directly to her. And he was accurately describing a photo from her childhood when she was a little girl. And she just lost it because she didn't know this guy at all. She'd never even seen him before. See, the Spirit was showing him this picture from her childhood, and he accurately described it. Well, that got my skeptical attention. That could only be God. That day got me to thinking about the things the enemy of God speaks to us about the past. Now, by the enemy of God, I mean Satan or the devil. I know, 
Some of you might be thinking that is like so yesterday. So Saturday Night Live. I mean, they're even bringing Church Lady back. Give it up. You know, that's got to be, what, 20 years ago? I don't know how far back that goes. But we got to remember something. Jesus mentions the devil nine times, at least nine times, in the Gospels. And he also mentions the devil in that desert thing, you know, the 40-day fast in the desert, we call it the temptation, interacted with the devil a whole bunch in there. I think the devil might be real if he was interacting with him. Plus the fact Jesus was the only one there. How did it get into the Gospels unless he told the disciples what happened? We also know, and these are the words of Jesus, John eight forty four. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And here's a big one, John 3, 8, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. I remember a guy in a church we went to years ago saying to me one morning, I don't believe in the devil. I should have spoken this scripture right there. In fact, I should have left that church right there, but didn't yet. It was on the way, but didn't came to destroy the devil's works. If you say you don't believe in the devil and you're a Christian, you got a problem. There's something in there not working. All right? This scripture right here, for me, this case is closed. He is real. He's very real. What are liar loops? Well, liar loops are my terms for a repetitive memory. Now, some of we've got some mental health professionals in here, I believe. You might call those flashbacks. i I've heard that term used. But it was something that was done to you or that you did or both. The memory itself isn't a lie. It likely really did happen. But the liar, the liar is the enemy of God. Now remember, Jesus said he is the father of lies. And the lie he tells is that because that thing, whatever it was, happened, you are spiritually slowed or even paralyzed in the kingdom of God. A good Christian friend told me that every woman's retreat she had ever been to was attended by several women dealing with abuse. It's less evident for men, probably for the same reason we don't ask directions. Liar loops run over and over and over. It's like that annoying little movie, you know, in some ads when you get to the weather sites, like, you know, there's this action thing going in the peripheral vision of, of what you're looking at. They're kind of like that. The enemy of God starts those movies for you and tells you you're, a, you're damaged goods forever. And you may not even realize this is going on. And I want you to remember that phrase, you may not realize what's going on in the background. I'm going to tell you this morning, by way of a testimony about a liar loop that's plagued me for a long time. Now, I am not one of those people who likes to get up here and share and be transparent and all that stuff. That's the last thing I want to do. But I have talked to some of you about the things you have been through. And I understood what you said because I have been in this liar loop for many years. I'm not there anymore, praise God. I'm going to tell you what happened. I was born in 1947 right after World War II. Now, I know, I can't believe it either, but it's germane as part of the story, so we had to put it in there. My mom and dad were from uh, up here in Cameron, Missouri. 
That's a picture of them. They were intelligent, talented, I think very good-looking people. They married during the war for very different reasons. I think my mother wanted bright city lights, Prince Charming, and the good life for a change. She grew up poor. My dad, in his own words, and he said this to me, that he was an arrogant flyboy, an officer, and a gentleman. He gave orders, and things happened. Standard phrase, we want results, not excuses. Anybody heard that one before? Hmm? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. It's probably a generational thing. It's all right. He was one of the youngest Marine pilots in the country, commanding a B-25 bomber crew by the age of about 19. I don't think I knew what planet I was on at the age of 19. But he's flying this plane. I don't remember what the crew was, five or something on the, on the B-25. I mean, he's out there flying these things, you know, flying the missions, commanding the plane. At 21, he was flying the bad boy F4U Corsairs in the Pacific, and that was like the baddest plane we had in the U.S. I mean, it was one tough fighter plane. In 1945, when the war was over, jobs were very hard to find as we you know, transitioned from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. So my dad elected to rejoin the Marines as a pilot. He and my mom moved with my brother and myself to uh, El Toro, Toro Marine Air Station in California. Flying was my dad's whole life, and he could not give it up. Now, I believe at this point in their marriage, there were problems. I think that for a lot of different reasons, which I won't go into. But it was about to get much worse. One morning, early 1949, while doing touch-and-go landings with his squadron, where they come down, touch the runway, take off again, his life changed forever. He was very tired from driving all night, and he may have gotten caught in the prop wash of the plane directly in front of him, but somehow the tip of his wing hit the runway, and he cartwheeled down the runway into a terrible crash. This is a Navy photo of that wreckage. That's my dad's leg there at the bottom of the wreckage. Nobody should have survived that. Nobody, but he did. So in about 60 seconds, he goes from Top Gun to helpless. He had multiple fractures, including facial fractures. There was a bomb site on the Corsair. When he went forward, he hit it so hard, the bomb site, it not only broke the bones in his face, but it popped the optic nerves in his eyes. Permanently blind. No surgery could repair it. The news was a terrible shock for my mother and, of course, the entire family. This is what my dad looked like seven months after being in the hospital for seven months. He could walk, he could talk, he could hear, but his left arm there is uh, totally useless, and he would live in total darkness for the rest of his life. And you can see his looks were gone. He would never teach his sons to hunt or fish or play football or fly. I'd like to tell you they heroically triumphed against all odds. They didn't. They were in their early 20s. They were not yet mature. Both were overwhelmed at living with the tragedy that was theirs. It was a nightmare for them. I'm not going to go into much detail about what it was like in our home except to say that it was very, very unstable. 
My grandmother cared for us a lot, bless her heart, because they were apart a lot, weeks at a time. It was a great deal of fighting. Sometimes it was violent. Often I was afraid they would leave, and then I was afraid they would come back. I was afraid. Some of you get this part. My dad did receive medical retirement from the Department of the Navy, and he was able to go to a a school in Chicago where he learned to be a blind guy in a sighted world, basically. But my mother could never accept what had happened. Her dreams were absolutely destroyed. I think part of her died on that runway that day. So... In my anger as a kid, I did basically what a lot of kids do. I disconnected from them. That was so painful for me, I disconnected. I'll tell you on a a lighter note, when you disconnect from something like that, you look for something to connect to. Well, for me, it was a TV show, oddly enough. And it was a show most of you have never heard of. It was called The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Some of you have heard of it. Bless your hearts. You've got to be an older dude to remember it, usually. But I never missed this show. Throughout school, it was who I wanted my parents to be in the home that I wanted. And Ozzy was like this really cool dad at his office job, made good money. They lived in a cool house in California. Harriet was the classic TV's mom, dressed to the nines, hair perfect, Baking cookies for her boys, David and Ricky, when they came home from school. Oh, my gosh. Why couldn't it be me? But by far, the coolest thing about the whole show was Ricky Nelson. As he turned into a teenager, he, he had one rock and roll hit after another. I think he had 19 top 10 hits in his career. I mean, like, nobody should look like that, you know? I don't think I've ever seen anybody since that looked like that. Some of you would, I'm sure, disagree with that. That's fine. But girls swooned over Ricky Nelson. Of course, guys like me, we wish we were Ricky Nelson. Not to be. I was stuck in my awful story, and there was no way out. To be fair, there were some relatively good times there in the, in the early 60s, but, you know, by then the damage was done. My dad agreed to an unwise move to Hawaii about 67 Mom's idea. He left his family members in Wichita, his job, his veterans organization, all the historical uh, lifetime things that he had in that town, and they moved to Honolulu area where they'd been two times in World War II. For him, it was a disaster. They divorced in 1969. Now, that was also about the time that I started to uh, notice Connie. Now, the first time I ever went over to her house, and this was a total setup, I realize, of course, now. But, uh, I mean, walked in there, and it was like walking into the land of Ozzie and Harriet. I mean, the place was immaculate, you know. There was soft music playing, candles burning. I think I remember fresh cookies, the scent of fresh cookies. I'm not really quite sure about that. And it didn't hurt the fact that she was and is cute. That didn't hurt at all. I was toast at that point. She was, and her family was, what I vowed to find as a kid. That's what exactly I was looking for, for that woman, that family, that home, that environment. 
Not perfect, as I found out later, of course. But oh, what a difference from my family, you know. Our two daughters grew up as Ozzie and Harriet as I could make it, although I'm sure I sounded like my dad many times. They sure had Harriet for a mom, bless her heart. But you know, there's always been something wrong. We use the term liar loops for recurring memories that are not lies, but the enemy of God delights in turning on that little movie window, you know? And you can't ignore it. It's there. It's showing you that failure scene or scenes over and over. Because of whatever, you can never be what God built you to be. You're permanently damaged, so you're not a real son or God, son or daughter of the king. You will always follow Jesus at a distance. Not good enough. Don't know if you've felt that or not. For me, the issue was trust. I could never trust them. I never connected with them. So I could never trust anybody. Talk about limited relationships. For a long time, nobody ever got in. Well, that was true until last year. Now, I can't tell you the exact day this happened. But the enemy of God started the old movie again. Whether I wanted to or not, I watched. And in the middle of that movie, it stopped dead. And I saw slowly the last thing I ever expected to see. This was a picture for me that was impossible. This is what it was. Pictures speak to me. I will never forget this one. It was three people. I was in the middle, my dad on my right, my mom on my left. We looked like we were about 30 years old. There was no background except light. We were looking at something. A better way to say it is someone. There was no animosity, no hatred, no disloyalty, and no mourning. My word. And I immediately understood the absolute truth of that scene. I was literally seeing a sliver of my own future. My dad was saved about a year before his death in 2011. My mom has fully returned to Jesus, teaches a Bible study where she lives down in senior living. We all made the cut because he's merciful. See, there's this kind of filter that you go through on your way out of here. I don't know exactly how it works, but no unholy thing can go there. The goobah of your life can't go through the filter. Only holy can go to be with the Father. Revelations 24, 21.4 says it very well. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. My word or crying, or pain. That scripture means more to me than it ever has. Why didn't I see the enemy of God stealing the precious golden moments of my life all these years? 
Why did it take that long? And a picture directly from God the Father for me to understand what was happening. I'll tell you one reason, because I'm way better at seeing the specks in your eyes than I am at seeing the plank in mine, like most of us are. One of the versions of the Bible says the log in your eye. I told Connie I ought to change my email to logi at gmail.com. It's probably already taken, you know, I don't know. But see, I decided early in life I would pack that box up, wrap it tight with rope, and put it in a dark corner and never open it again. I didn't want to open it again. So a decision made is like an eight-year-old you live with for life. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that. I'm up here. I'm supposed to have it together, you know. But on that one, I did not. I had that anger that T.A. spoke about. I had the plank in my eye Bob talked about. But you know that movie is shut off forever. It doesn't mean I suddenly have amnesia and I don't remember what happened. It means the enemy has been called out and the torment part of that is over. I need to remember what that was like. Because I will hear your stories and I can truly say, I get that. Who's most effective in praying for a cancer patient? Somebody who has had cancer. Somebody that gets it, who's been there. Well, on this score, if you tell me a story similar to mine, I'm going to know what you're talking about. I'll know where you're coming from. See, the gospel's so simple. We have two things to do now, not 613 Levitical commandments. Two. You can make it more complicated if you want to, but it's two things. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And when you do that, you're not going to be doing, saying, seeing some of the things we're doing now. And the second thing is love your neighbor as yourself. Subset under that, something I bet most of you have not heard of. It's called the law of Christ. We don't have 613 laws. We have one, the law of Christ. It's in Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. There's no more effective person to come alongside you than somebody that knows where you are, what you've been through. God will not let you forget these things and these liar loops. And that's the reason. He will heal you, deliver you. But you need to say to somebody else going down the road, I've been there. I know what you mean. It's tremendously important. Nothing is wasted by God. You're going to have a testimony of deliverance. You're going to give it to somebody else. I've given you mine this morning. We know three things. We know who's starting the movie. It's the dirt bag. He goes way back. I like to call him names sometimes, just see if it ticks him off. I don't know if it does. <laughs> you know who's starting the movie, and the second thing is you know what it does to you. How devious. He steals your life. It's precious moments. The third thing is we know there's only one who can deliver you from that. Lord God has the power to shut that off. 
I know it for a fact. Pastor Greg Laurie said at Promise Keepers years ago, he said, when the devil knocks on his door, he goes, Lord, would you mind getting that? I love that picture, you know. I love that picture. Band, you can come, come on back up. Well, do the word. We're going to reread our scripture lesson here. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil when he came to do that very thing. Expect to be strengthened and protected. Expect it. Now, there's going to be people up here today to pray for you. They understand this. They understand liar loops. There's brothers and sisters in this room, people you know and trust, to hear about your liar loops. We have the wonderful small group structure where you can start to say it in front of your church family. And if necessary, there are Christian counselors in the area who understand this. This is spiritual war. The enemy of God is your enemy. He is not a cartoon. Take this seriously. We're going to sing wonderful, merciful Savior, and then we'll have a last word. Let's go ahead and stand.